I've been a Methodist all my life. I've been a Methodist pastor for 11 years. And in that time, I've noticed that it's really helpful to talk about uh, really what the nature of Methodism is. There are a lot of people who are Methodists, but they don't necessarily know what Methodism is, is about, why it came about. Um, and so I thought it'd be helpful to do a series on a couple of the foundational doctrinal documents uh, determining what early Methodism was about and how we're connected to that today. The series, we're going to do a three-part series on the document that's called The Nature, Design, and General Rules of the United, of Our United Societies. And this was something that was in place uh, from the very beginning up till today. This is still a binding document for all Methodist denominations that I'm aware of today. And it's something that's very useful in determining our theological outlook on how and why we worship, how and why we do discipleship. And so as I, I walk through this, what I'm going to do today, I'm just going to read the front piece and the back piece of this document, and then we're going to read over the general rules in two more segments. Um, but as we're reading through this front piece in particular, I want us to be aware Methodism was not initially a denomination. It was a revival movement within the Church of England. So it was a voluntary association. It was something that nobody was forced into, but there was a, a quality control concern in the midst of this revival. So here's it starts with some history, and then it goes through some practical theology. So here's how it begins. In the latter end of the year 1739, eight or ten persons came to Mr. John Wesley in London, who appeared to be deeply convinced of sin and earnestly groaning for redemption. They desired, as did two or three more the next day, that Mr. Wesley would spend some time with them in prayer and advise them how to flee from the wrath to come. That's language from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. Whenever John the Baptist is chewing out the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, these people wanted to flee from the wrath to come, which they saw continually hanging over their heads. That he might have more time for this great work, uh, Mr. Wesley appointed a day when they might all come together, which from thenceforward they did every week, namely on Thursday in the evening. See, this is just logistical history here. To these, and as many more as desired to join with them, for their number increased daily. Now, I think that's an allusion to the book of Acts, he gave those advices from time to time which he judged most needful for them, and they always concluded their meeting with prayer suited to their several necessities. Doesn't this sound nice? This was the rise of the United Society. Uh, initially, Methodist was kind of a, a slur, pejorative term, which they owned, but they called their actual organization the United Society, first in Europe and then in America. Such a society is no other than, quote, a company of men having the form and seeking the power of godliness. That's from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. It's uh, Paul was writing Timothy condemning people in the future church who would be falling away. And it would, uh, he said that they would have the form, but not the power of godliness. And the Methodists said, we want to have the form and the power of godliness. United in order to pray together, to receive the word of exhortation, and to watch over one another in love, that they may help each other to work out their salvation. That's an interesting phrase. We'll, 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 look, we'll see it immediately again, that it may the more easily be discerned whether they are indeed working out their own salvation. Each society is divided into smaller companies called classes 
according to the respective places of abode. Just where they lived, you were grouped together. If you were uh, afraid for the wrath to come, afraid for your soul, you were banded together in these classes. And there were about 12 persons in a class, one of whom was styled the leader. The leader's job is, one, to see each person in his class once a week at least in order to inquire how their souls prosper, to advise, reprove, comfort, or exhort as occasion may require, and to receive what they are willing to give toward the relief of the preachers, the church, and the poor. And secondly, the leader's duty was to meet the ministers and the stewards of the society once a week in order to inform the minister of any that were sick or of any that walked disorderly, that means that were sinners and would not be reproved, and to pay the stewards what they have received of their several classes in the week preceding. So there is only one condition previously required of those who desired admission into these societies, and that was, quote, a desire to flee from the wrath to come, and that's from Matthew chapter 3 again, and to be saved from their sins, which is the correlate with that. But wherever this is really fixed in the soul, it will be shown by its fruits. So that is a core theological, practical um, argument made by Wesley and the early Methodists from the very beginning was it is not possible to be saved and not bear any fruits. And of course, they're making allusion to Jesus' language directly saying, judge a tree by its fruits. So we saw this, this language of working out one's salvation with fear and trembling. That's, of course, from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. That's, that's in the scriptures where we are told to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that's kind of goes against the grain of uh, Baptist territory that I'm, I serve in. Most people are, are given the impression that that's works righteousness, that, um, that there is no work for us to do, that it's all God's work. The Wesleyan notion is that yes, God does the bulk of the work. God does the whole of the work of our salvation, but we work alongside Him. It is a cooperative work. You know, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, right? He is the lead horse pulling the way, but we're expected to, to pull our weight too. And so here's, here's a definition I thought would be helpful. This is John Wesley's definition. This is from the ser- his sermon called The Reformation of Manners. He describes what the purpose of the church is. He says, the church is a body of men and women compacted together in order first to save each his own soul, then to assist each other in working out their salvation, and afterwards, as far as in them lies, to save all men from present and future misery, to overturn the kingdom of Satan and set up the kingdom of Christ. And this ought to be the continued care and endeavor of every member thereof. Otherwise, he is not worthy to be called a member of the church, as he is not a living member of Christ. So for John Wesley in particular, and and Methodists more generally, they were very clear that the role of a Christian. They didn't see themselves as necessarily a divisive sect. They saw themselves as reclaiming biblical Christianity. And what they saw in their context was a lack of interest in holiness. And so what they said is, we have to be interested in holiness. We have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And we have to have a clear notion of who's really in it and who's not. And that's something that that transferred over once it became a denomination. So um, let's, let's look at the final piece of this. We're going to skip the general rules. Do no harm, do good, attend upon the ordinances. We'll talk about these 
um, in, in further installments. But here's how, after he covers all three general rules and the particulars thereof, um, here's the final paragraph that it ends with. These are the general rules of our societies, all of which we are taught of God to observe, even in His written word, which is the only rule and the sufficient rule, both of our faith and practice. So if you're ever curious how Methodists are supposed to feel about the Scriptures, it's our only rule and a sufficient rule. And all these we know His Spirit writes on truly awakened hearts. So it's saying anyone who's really in Christ is going to agree about these general rules. If there be any among us who observe them not, who habitually break any of these rules, let it be known unto them who watch over that soul as they who must give an account. We will admonish him in the error of his ways. We will bear with him for a season, but then if he repent not, he hath no more place among us. We have delivered our own souls. And that's how it ends. It ends with a call to kick people out if they will not obey, if they will not get with the program, if they, let's see, what was the language here? Um, that they habitually break any of the rules, that they, that they will not be corrected. So this is, you know, and we'll see once we come to the rules, this is actually a very high bar, and it's pretty clear that it wasn't ever practiced too strictly because if you practiced it too strictly, you wouldn't have anybody in there. But John Wesley was known to go from society to society where this was the general rule that they followed, and he would kick out sometimes up to a third of the people who were there. There would be 500 members. Whenever he left, there would be 300, 320, 350. Not in every case. Sometimes he, he didn't have to kick out that many. But the, he would examine every single Methodist, or they would be examined by other local leaders that, that, that went around and, and kept the, the society moving and going. And if they were not interested in obeying, they were booted out. And within early Methodism, once it became a denomination, there was uh, exercise of church discipline. Now, this is something that scandalizes a lot of people today, but we have to remember this is scriptural, okay? This is something that, that Jesus himself talks about in Matthew chapter 18. This is something that Paul talks very explicitly about in 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6. He mocks the church for not exercising church discipline, for acting as though they can't tell the difference between those who are really in it for Christ and those who are in it for other reasons. This is uh, a religious tradition that's based very much on uh, looking at the fruits of a person's life and examining yourself and through the power of the Holy Spirit being given authority to examine other people. It says that they were there to watch over one another in love. And that's the thing is the lens that Methodists use was gracious towards one another. It's not what you would imagine coming in where everybody's just looking to judge one another and look down their noses at one another. All descriptions of early Methodist societies were that they were very gracious, that they prayed over one another, that they encouraged one another, and that they lovingly admonished and corrected one another. That's all biblical. That's something that they, they looked around in early Methodist societies and said, hey, we're seeing the Bible come to life here. This is what early, Meth this is what early Christianity looked like. And even people from the outside who agree disagreed with John Wesley on theology, they would look at, at his ministry and what he and the early Methodists created, and they had to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit was with us. Now, what's happened since then is we've fallen away from this. Uh, we maintain this standard 
for over 100 years in America, but one day the standards fell. Uh, while the standards were high, there was a point where one in three Americans were Methodist. After the standards fell, it, it's maintained as a, a largely culturally influential body, but it's shrunk every year. And there's a good question to be asked of whether we should maybe reclaim some of this discipline. So uh, we're going to end this segment. I want to encourage you to, to go uh, to the next segment whenever we put it out next week, and we're going to look at all the do do nots the do no harm what are the things that that do harm that we need to avoid so until then i would just ask you to to pray on uh if there's anything good to be said about exercising church discipline and maintaining a high standard for discipleship ask that question of what's been lost whenever churches no longer maintain a standard for discipleship and whenever it no longer seems realistic to have a society that's that's organized around um, a common rule of life. So um, it's, it's possible that we gained something by leaving that behind. It's also possible that we've lost a lot that we need to reclaim. So be thinking on that. Join us for the next segment. Thanks for spending time with me.